0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello, my name is Astrid Edwards and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman Season 5. Before we get started, thanks must go to Hachette Publishing. Hachette is dedicated to telling stories that matter, and without Hachette, this podcast would simply not be possible. Now, coming up on Season 5, we have eight weeks of interviews and discussions about books and stories for you. Jamila Rizvi will not be able to join us this week, and instead, we have Helen McCabe, founder and CEO of Future Women. Hello, Helen. This is a very exciting episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. Welcome,
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's kind of nice to be here, particularly as one of your number one fans. So it's nice to be filling in for Jamila.
0: Number one fan. I like the sound of that. (laughs) Now, we are back for season five and we picked a really happy theme to start with, innovation. Which I have to say, sounded a lot happier when we weren't all in lockdown.
1: (laughs) I know, we've already started talking about how frustrating it is to be in lockdown, at least in a funny sort of way, Sydney and Melbourne are now in it together. There was a bit of a moment where we were completely out of step and, you know, the teams were out of step and our families were out of step, but we're all back in it together and, and talking from exactly the same perspective as, I guess, as disturbing and incomprehensible as it is, and yet the exciting bit about today is that we're talking about a lockdown book, which is incredibly uplifting. We really,
0: really are. So today we're going to talk about Vaxes: the inside story of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the race against the virus. What a title by Sarah Gilbert and Catherine Green. And we are also going to talk about Unwell, a journey through medicine and myth in a man-made world by Eleanor Clegghorn, We are going into vaccine territory. We are going into science. We are going into medicine. When Jam and I first proposed the topic to you, Helen, what did you think? What sprang to your mind?
1: I guess I'm living through a, a digital age. So when I think of innovation, I think of Melanie Perkins and Canva, Catherine McConnell and Bright, the sort of women at the front line of big software plays that are changing the way we do absolutely everything. And I think that's because they're the ones that get all the press. You know, they're super exciting. They've taken on huge legacy businesses and turned it upside down. So that's probably where my brain goes to immediately. I've also spent a lot of time working in media companies. So it's a word that gets bandaged around a lot in the media and doing things in an innovative way. It's almost an overused word that is a stopgap for not doing very much. So, I have a certain level of scepticism about the word innovation as well.
0: For me, I guess it means we were looking for a hopeful topic and I guess it means change or progress or something different. You know, whatever we have, whatever the status quo is, moving it along a little bit and I know we're all in a pandemic and sometimes things feel like they're not moving. You know, it all feels a bit the same. Whether you're in lockdown or not, it just feels like 2021 is just a continuation of 2020. But I really, I feel better after reading these two books because it reminds me that stuff changes. It doesn't stay the same. And sometimes it's women who are behind the change.
1: Well, that for me is a standout. It's it's an absolute standout that women are behind the change, and I'm not sure whether it sort of coincided with some reading around the numbers of women in STEM and the systemic problem of actually tackling that issue how do you get more women into science and there's a lot of discussion in this country that it's a cultural problem it goes back to you know when we're all born as little girls and how we get taught in this country but nevertheless it's very rare that we talk about female scientists and it's very rare in history that female scientists have been at the forefront of innovation and at the time that I picked up vaxes it was something that i was thinking a lot about and to see Professor Sarah Gilbert and Dr Catherine Green's name on the front page or the front cover of this book was just so, I guess, symbolic of the potential that if you can give little girls an education in science, and I mean the ones with mathematic brains, not ones like me who don't have a mathematical brain, the possibilities are endless. They can change the face of the world. And these women have done. They really can. Let's get cracking. So let's talk about Vaxxers by Professor Sarah Gilbert and Dr. Catherine Green. I'm going to be ridiculous. I absolutely loved every page. I couldn't put it down. The moment we finish this discussion, I'm going to put it in the post to my dad in South Australia because I was just telling him all about it on the weekend. It is a cracking read, and the reason for that is it's written in both voices, Kath and Sarah's voices, and they're just so likable. They're so just everyday women living in Oxford, cycling to work, which happens to be Oxford University, watching this pandemic erupt in China, a bit like everybody, I don't know about you, but I was sort of keeping across it without any of the understanding of the issue and without giving it all away in the opening few remarks. It just takes you on that ride. There's humanity to it. You fall completely in spell of these two women. But I also learnt so much. They're like the science teachers that you wanted to have at school who made you understand the really cool stuff.
0: Is that how you felt? That is an excellent description. I uh, was not known for my science ability, Helen. But yeah, I mean, these two women are are regular women, obviously incredibly educated and skilled and wondrous in that profession. But regular women, regular mums, regular partners and friends watching the pandemic and suddenly realising that the role that they would play wasn't going to be on the sidelines. Their everyday job was going to change and obviously that would take a lot from them. And so, you know, you see... This mum trying to figure out how to do the shopping and how to get over her recent separation from her partner. Trying to figure out how to save humanity in her day job. It's
1: wild. The moment I became hooked is really early on. In fact, I read it out loud to someone on the phone because I was so gripped by it. It was a moment she's gone camping with her daughter. This is Kat. She's gone camping with her daughter, eleven-year-old Ellie. They've taken a break. She's been absolutely exhausted from all the work going on around the trials and the research and the press, which is a whole other component of this story and she's standing in the pizza shop waiting for a pizza because her daughter got sick of the cooking at the campfire and someone says they were making small talk about the vaccine and hope it comes soon but I don't know I don't really trust it we don't really know what's in it and I don't know that I'd be in a hurry and who really knows what's in a vaccine and Kat says well I do not only do I know I made it and she says, so she tells this woman in the pizza shop that it's 100% safe and incredibly effective. And she knows exactly what the ingredients are. In fact, she can tell her what the ingredients are and there's absolutely zero reason to be afraid of it. And that is in the first few pages. And from that moment on, I was just completely hooked all the way through to the point around embryos and fetuses, where there becomes a mini story later in the vaccine production process around whether the church groups were going to allow us to have this vaccine because they were concerned about the use of aborted fetuses and, and everything in between. The impressive layer of detail and the consideration and care that went into producing the AstraZeneca vaccine, but also the sheer volume of work and the pressure was just startling.
0: It really was startling. And, you know, there are descriptions of how this compared with previous vaccines that these women have been involved in. And and they have been involved in the development of previous vaccines, including for Ebola in 2014, which is an incredibly scary disease that was all over our news several years ago. And, you know, it's not just women in a lab in their white lab coats it's the funding applications and it's the where do you get the original starter for the vaccine you know it turns out a vaccine is kind of like sourdough you need a starter you can't just start working with the things that you plug in it's extraordinary all of the the politicking they had to do the finding partnerships you know going from a university oxford into the big pharma how do you if you're going to make a vaccine how do you get it to the world all of these kind of things which were essentially resting on the shoulders of these women now they had a team around them, many other scientists, and they are very careful to thank all of those other scientists that they work with. But essentially, they were kind of leading the effort. And you forget me sitting in my lockdown in Melbourne throughout 2020, hoping a vaccine would be invented. These were the women who were inventing it.
1: I know, that's right. And did you did you have any moment, because I'm ashamed to admit this, but I will admit it for the purposes of this podcast? I was concerned about the speed with which these vaccines were being made because I'd watched the news coverage and it takes 10 years to do a vaccine and expert after expert going, we may never get a vaccine. And then we've got one, like overnight, which it was overnight. We now know it was overnight and we know why. Did you, were you concerned going, oh, I don't know. I'm a bit
0: worried about that process. I wasn't, but that's because I come from a very different health point of view. I have multiple sclerosis and I take a really <laughs> hardcore drug that does all sorts of terrible things to me. So, you know, I was, uh, I'm pretty much on board with science and because of the drugs I take, I already take a really big risk for a variety of unpleasant side effects. But that reflects me being an unwell woman. And someone who is already taking risks with medication. And I know that they benefit my life every day. So I didn't have that reaction. But what I did have was kind of like an existential fear that there would be no vaccine or a vaccine that was going to cost huge amounts of money that almost no one would be able to afford. And essentially, we'd kind of get most of the world exposed with only the very rich protected in their bubbles. And that kind of, yeah, that was my fear, I guess.
1: So this book does an incredible job of explaining how you can develop a vaccine in eight months or whatever they did it. The book says disease X was what they'd already identified. So they knew disease X was coming. So they were ready for it. And disease X is... COVID 19, they now talk about disease Y. What is that? And can they have the funding now? <laughs> I think they probably will, they will probably get it. But that's right. The ability for these scientists to change lives globally is unparalleled. The other bit about it, Astrid, that I, I think was really heartening was that everyone did just get behind it. And it wasn't a vaccine for the wealthy we now in a battle about AstraZeneca in this country, whether it was good or bad, which is kind of a, another point. But AstraZeneca just jumped in, not knowing either whether it was going to be bankrupted by its support for this vaccine. I'm assuming the gamble has paid off in terms of profitability for that organisation, but that wasn't assured at all. And they guaranteed Oxford University that they would treat it equally so that all countries would have the vaccine made available to them. So there's a lot of great humanity in the project as well, which is lovely when we're all in lockdown to hear.
0: Oh, it is so heartening. And I know that some people will be listening to us, Helen, thinking, oh, but, you know, AstraZeneca is the dodgy vaccine that I didn't want. And I had the AstraZeneca vaccine and I am deeply grateful that I did. I was in 1B, how Australia originally did the rollout. And so I got AstraZeneca my first dose before it was advised against for my age group, and all I want to say is this is a beautiful damn book and I really
1: love these women. Absolutely. And I'm with you too on that. You know, reading it made me feel, I guess, small and insignificant because we are, but also ashamed of some of the assumptions that I had about what was going on and that I bought into. As I mean, I've been a journalist for 30 years, that I bought into some of the media stories which were were all completely wrong and these women had to wake up to untruths like there was a story that one of the patients had died it just wasn't true it was fake news who would you say this book is for I think I said at the beginning to you that I'm going to take it to the post office this afternoon and send it to my dad, who's an 80-year-old consuming the news very closely and is really fascinated by the news events. So I think it's got universal appeal because it's so well-written and because it's got such a personal touch, so you you learn about their families, you learn about the twins, not the twins, the triplets, but there's a big difference, I'm assuming, between twins and triplets. So sorry, Professor Gilbert. Look, I, I think it's got universal appeal. Anyone who's interested in just a really good read, I'd be that simple about it. And then the role model issue, then for women who are interested in a science career and anyone interested in how the vaccine rollout globally was undertaken.
0: Helen, I'm so excited to introduce today Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World by Eleanor Cleghorn. Now, this came out a few months ago in 2021, and I have to admit I have seen it on the coming soon list and I have been waiting for it because I myself am an unwell woman and I love this kind of thing. Clayhorn is a feminist cultural historian, and about seven or eight years ago, she discovered that she was actually very ill. She'd been ill for a while, and she got a diagnosis of lupus, which is a significant autoimmune disease. And she did not have a good experience with the medical profession—not the individuals in the profession, but the research around her disease, the options that she was given, the understanding that the Western medical tradition had of what she might be experiencing. And her question was, how can this be in the 21st century? How can we know so little, not just about women's bodies, but about the diseases that predominantly affect women and the conditions that predominantly affect women, as opposed to those that affect men? And it's a big
1: question. Did you feel like you got a satisfactory answer? Because I mean, let's face it, there really isn't a satisfactory answer.
0: Look, there's not. And there's a whole bunch of things that we can blame. And I use the word blame advisedly. There's a whole lot of patriarchy, but also cultural approaches, religious approaches, mores of the day over the last two and a half thousand years. All of these have combined in different ways at different times to leave the bodies of women out. However, I also learned a few random things. So, you know, I am a woman of a certain age who at some point in my life was completely obsessed with Queen Elizabeth I, right? And I found out that Elizabeth I did this amazing thing where she's like, please, everybody stop grave robbing. That's disgusting. If you need to do your medical research, please use the bodies of criminals, which sounds like an enlightened, advanced thing to do. You don't want people grave robbing to conduct their medical experiments, right? Except- most criminals at that time and in that place in history were males. And so all of the surgeons who were doing the state-sanctioned research on cadavers were only working on males. Therefore, they only mapped the nerves of males and the internal organs of males. And presumably that was a great law, but also left the women's bodies out. And that kind of thing reverberates through the centuries, right? And that wasn't patriarchy that was a law that was otherwise useful for everybody living at that time. So I found this book fascinating, like genuinely fascinating about all the things that have gone wrong in history to leave bodies like mine and bodies like yours out. At the same time, I'm a bit angry. I think that's justifiable for everybody listening to have a tradition of medicine that basically preferences of the penis and just assumes that if you have a uterus it's all your own fault or you just imagined it that's pretty harsh to take right like that's a bit much and that still happens today and it happens to people all over the world but in general it happens a lot to people with neurological and autoimmune diseases and they so often happen to women
1: that is the case today as you say uh, one of the things that always strikes me about medicine and I'm sure it does you as you you continue to spend an inordinate amount of time dealing with medical issues is how little the medical profession actually knows there are so many common ailments that you go to a doctor with and ask Reasonable questions to get almost no answer. Did you get a sense from reading this book that we're getting any better at understanding the human body, putting aside the gender differences, which are hard to put aside? I acknowledge, but that the medical profession is is advancing in better understanding the body at all, and even common ailments, let alone complicated ones like the condition that you live with.
0: Look, that's a really good question. Kind of is my answer. I'm not hedging it. I I kind of have that feeling. So the book itself is divided into three parts. It goes from ancient Greece until the 19th century, from the 19th century until World War II, and then World War II to now. Now, obviously, most of the advances, as we consider them, have all happened in the last kind of 70-odd years, which is great for us, and it's great for you and I, Helen. But even with that speeding up of history, it's really only been in the last two decades that... How someone does a medical trial, a phase three trial, what bodies they choose to put in there. Do they use humans or animals? Do they use female animals, let alone just male animals? All of that has started to change. So it's going to take another couple of generations of medical trials and therapies, another couple of decades for it to kind of even out. I think Now that's my very unscientific explanation of why there is such a lag between Conversations like we're having and conversations like this that are happening by very real scientists as opposed to people who just love books in the medical and research communities, but why it takes so long for that to kind of impact the person on the other end who might receive the treatment or the therapy or the advice. So we are getting there, but it is taking a very long time and the battle is certainly not won. Like we've obviously just talked about vaxxers and vaccine development and we've all heard now a lot about how you do phase three trials and how you check if a, if a medication is going to be okay in the real world and in the real world, this has included everybody that the trials could get their hands on. But previously it's often only people of a certain age or people of a certain gender and they take out women who are menstruating or they take out kids or they take out older women who have stopped menstruating, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of like, wow, they have no data on us, Helen. They don't know how it works. And then they hope for the best when we turn up to a GP. Extraordinary.
1: Well, and and on that, turning up to a GP, I mean, I didn't see a, a female GP until I was, might have been because I selected into a female GP for all of the reasons that you would if you had a choice in your 20s or 30s. Of course you're going to go and find a female GP. But that was not really much of an option when I was one to 15. I only ever saw bail GPs. And to your point, they cared. They couldn't really explain a lot.
0: Yeah. And this is essentially a history book unwell women. And one of the things I found fascinating was women in different times than ours now, and this mm-hmm. is across cultures, across a sweep of 2000 years of history, but a female feeling ill, and going to the local, the, the priest or the doctor or whoever was the person that you went to for help. And so often that person seeing you behind a curtain or not seeing you without your relatives there or not actually physically touching you because it was inappropriate for a man to touch a female body, etc., etc. Certainly not looking at anything that was women's issues in quotation marks, and they actually couldn't treat women's bodies if they refused to touch them or look at them. (laughs) I mean, extraordinary.
1: Well, and 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 that in many instances is a good outcome because there's so many, so much of the courts are filled with us giving enormous trust to medical professionals, only to have had that trust. Completely abused. You know, that incredible case in America of the physiotherapist to the one of the Olympic teams and the abuse of young girls, right? So, you know, you're always slightly, I think, as a young girl, you're always on edge anyway about whether you, when you walk down a street or walk onto a beach or uh, leave a pub and same when you go and see a medical professional, you're constantly on guard because you had to be. So the introduction of the female GP on every corner doctor surgery was a big advancement in itself.
0: Absolutely. Helen, I could not agree more. The idea that females can be medical professionals didn't exist 150 years ago in the Western tradition. And even now we're still kind of catching up to have female surgeons and female specialists, etc. It's still a work in progress and so much of medicine is. One of the things that I didn't know before I read Unwell Women was not just how much female bodies have been either left out or not researched or basically abused throughout medical history, but also black bodies, particularly black women's bodies, have been treated even worse there was this idea, this fallacy that black people didn't feel pain. And so you know, Unwell Women goes into some of the medical research and experiments, if I can even use those words, that didn't give black women anesthesia. And that is racism layered on top of a hatred or dismissal of the female body. And I think this book speaks very well to where women and female bodies stand in the Western medical tradition but I think it also opens up other doors for us all to think about in terms of racism and also in terms of class because throughout history the wealthier you are the better attention you got in general even if it wasn't specifically great for your body and the poorer you were the worse you were treated always.
1: Is there and taking into account your remarks at the beginning of this discussion. Is there anything like this book that you've read before? Do you think this is in a bit of a class of its own and therefore, again, unusual that we're even talking about it now, that it's taken us this long to talk about
0: it? That is a great question. I only have one book that is vaguely similar. So, Elena Clercon is actually from the UK. In 2019, Gabrielle Jackson, an Australian journalist, actually wrote Pain and Prejudice, A Call to Arms for Womanhood and Their Bodies. Now, Gabrielle Jackson has Endometriosis, which is another incredibly badly diagnosed disease that affects people with uteruses. And that work looks at how female bodies have been left out of research into pain. So it's not exactly the same, but I think that pain and prejudice goes really well with unwell women. They both have different structures and different approaches, but both are written by women with significant Conditions that are not well understood. They have had the experience of being left out of the medical establishment and not having adequate research done into their conditions. And they're both fantastic writers. So I highly recommend Unwell Women. And if you're looking for more, go for Pain and
1: Prejudice too. Well, I'm, I'm always interested in endometriosis because having been a sufferer of that and not ever being diagnosed until very late, just uh, anyway, it's, it's exhausting even thinking about, I guess what women long before us have gone through in these matters.
0: Helen, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> anonymous was a woman
1: this week it has been an utter pleasure it's been a pleasure to join you and i'm also pleased that you've accepted me to come back for a couple of other episodes this season so i will be bobbing back up with a couple of extra books that i'm currently absolutely devouring one of them i can't wait to talk to you about because i'm very interested to know whether you're going to agree with me or not looking forward to it helen
0: Thank you for joining Helen and I for the first episode of Anonymous Was a Woman Season 5. We will be back next week and our theme is equity. Thanks to Future Women, Hachette Publishing and Bioproducer Productions.